Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi there and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Another Brick in the Wall edition. It's Friday, July 22nd, the morning after Donald Trump's speech at the American Republican Convention. I just got to throw that out there. My name is Sarah O'Donnell. I am the Edmonton Journal's opinion page editor. My company this morning in the newsroom studio, our city columnist, Paula Simons. Good morning, Sarah. Provincial affairs reporter, Emma Graney. Hello. And Keith reporter and sometimes host of the podcast, Keith Durine. Did you just call me the Keith reporter? <laughs> she did. <laughs> I definitely heard that, the Keith reporter. I am the Keith reporter. Sometimes, that's, yeah, that's also the health statement. reporter, but thank you. <laughs> Let's try health reporter Keith Geride. Good should morning, I edit Sarah. that one? No, <laughs> you should keep that in. Keep all this in. This is how we do it here in this newsroom studio, oh, folks. Our topics rooted in Alberta politics today. The Premier's conference is heading into day two in Whitehorse. Why does Saskatchewan's Premier hate Alberta? Two independent officers of the legislature say Alberta's child welfare system is failing Aboriginal youth. We'll talk about those reports and whether they will generate some needed action. We'll also discuss whether Alberta is doing enough to inspect new healthcare facilities in a prompt fashion. I'm just, I still, I'm kind of hung up on this story, Keith. You know that. Okay. It's a good story. But first, I know that all political wonks are talking about what happened in the last few days in the United States, the Republican convention. Uh, Should we just throw out some quick reactions to that? I know we're an Alberta politics podcast, but come on, Paul, it's all you want to talk about when you come into my office. But it does matter to Alberta politics because Trump said first in an interview with the New York Times earlier this week and then again in his speech last night, reiterated that he wants major concessions on NAFTA and that if he doesn't get major, major, big, big concessions on NAFTA, uh, he's going to walk away from the deal, tear it up. He also says the Trans-Pacific Partnership is dead. uh, And that in his speech last night, he said the United States will sign no more multilateral trade agreements, apparently because they're too long and hard for Americans to read. Uh, So the prospect of a Trump presidency could be dire indeed for Canada as a trading nation. I mean, Trump was obsessed last night with a trade deficit. I'm not sure he quite understands what a trade deficit is and how it works, but, given the amount that we depend on the American market to sell all of our commodities, our meat, our grains, our oil, uh, our, some of our manufactured goods, the idea of a totally protectionist United States that's going to walk away from negotiated trade agreements should be chilling for people right across the political spectrum in Canada and Alberta. Not to mention that wall. That wall, yes. I mean, the wall, there's a wall to the south. It sounds like there wouldn't actually be a wall that he wants to put up around Canada, but... Uh, it would be really hard to do. Maybe yeah. longer yeah. border. We, yeah. may, we may want the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Paul. I saw you inviting your American friends and family to come live at yeah, your my, house my last house, night. My house isn't that big, but I told them they're all, they're all welcome. I mean... You know, it started off as a joke. All of these, you know, you, you know, Cape Breton websites trying to promote tourism to Cape Breton by saying, "Hey, come here if it's really bad there." But I think a lot of people who up until now have been smirking at the Donald Trump phenomenon and scoffing at the idea that he could ever beat Hillary Clinton 
after last night's speech, which was actually, by Trump standards, remarkably disciplined and on message, a very dark message, I, I think a lot of Americans had better stop laughing. Indeed. Well, one thing that hasn't been much of a laugh has been the uh, Council of the Federation. Is the Council of Federation ever a ball of yucks? I don't know. I the, love the way it's the meeting it, of it, the it's premiers. Time, it's time to coincide perfectly with the opening of the next Star Trek movie. And the Council of the Federation always makes me think that there ought to be, you know, some some uh, some Klingons at the table. What are the green things with the little horns? <laughs> I, I, I know Star Trek, and I actually no don't idea. know what you're talking. Oh, and Dorians. Okay. I'm just wondering who Captain Kirk is in your little analogy here. Is that Brad Wall? Is I think that, I think that's a segue. That's <laughs> there, a segue. There's no segue. Ever heard one. And our colleague Graham Thompson is up in Whitehorse for the Premier's Conference, and a few minutes ago I talked to him just by cell phone about what happened on day one, Thursday, and what might be coming on day two. So I'm just going to insert that into the show right here. So, Graham, tell us what's happened so far at the Premier's Conference on day one. Well, day one, the thing they were hoping to get on a positive side was some sort of deal on interprovincial trade, because people might not realize that there's a lot of barriers between provinces trying to trade with each other. Uh, so they're hoping to get some sort of deal on that. So they didn't get it, of course. Uh, maybe they'll go out again today. Uh, we also saw um, Brad... Wall, the Premier of Saskatchewan, uh, takes some shots at uh, Trudeau. Uh, he, of course, he arrived a little bit irritated with uh, Rachel Notley because of this uh, dispute over the beer tax in Alberta. And later in the day, Wall did sit down with Notley to discuss their differences over that beer tax, and they agreed to hand it over to officials to work out some sort of a, a, an agreement or options. But Notley is saying, look, just bringing in that tax regardless, and maybe they can work out some other thing to help out Saskatchewan. But Wall was really attacking Trudeau, because it was a discussion or a speculation that Trudeau might actually arrive at the Premier's conference yesterday, but it didn't show up. Uh, we're told it's because the Premiers have yet to get a, an agreement on the Canada Pension Plan uh, boost, so he didn't come, but you had Wall saying, well, the reason he didn't is because he wanted to come only for a photo op as opposed to anything, anything of, of depth. So Wall is the one I guess, person here who tends to maybe speak his mind and cause, uh, cause some ripples. He's the one that's uh, had disagreements with Notley a year ago at the Premier's Conference. This year, not quite so heated. And we may start seeing some deals today. I relatively doubt it. The one deal I expect they're going to reach will be them agreeing to ask Ottawa for more money for health care, as they usually do at these things. They tend to be um, united when it comes to asking money from the federal government. It's easy to agree upon. It's uh, not quite as complicated as pipelines or other interprovincial inter trade barriers there where there would be expected to be some give and take on their side. Yeah, because um, when it comes to issues, normally issues dealing with money, they all end up having to go to Ottawa uh, asking for more money for things like health care. And when it comes to interprovincial trade, that's such a complex issue because you've got provinces really trying to protect their jobs at home, and they don't want to be seen by their own voters to be giving something up that might hurt their own province. Okay, well, thanks, Graham, and uh, have a good day up in Whitehorse. Thank you very much. Bye. 
So that was Graham Thompson up in Whitehorse. Emma, you were in the studio listening when I was talking to him. You know Brad Wall much better than we do. Why is he always this figure at these meetings it has to be kind of the contrary guy or the guy picking a fight he really really likes to be seen to be standing up for saskatchewan he's like saskatchewan's guy he's got saskatchewan's interests at heart and i was actually reading a great column by um the regina leader post columnist murray mandrick and he was writing in in uh, saskatchewan obviously regina leader post emma of course that's where he is right um but he could have been in whitehorse or you something you never know okay yeah. so he was writing a, a really great column actually about brad wall why on earth is he picking up this little tiny thing and making a huge deal of it which by which i mean the beer tax um it just seems to be something he rather likes doing brad wall is kind of going up to uh you know the federation being like Saskatchewan. That's not a good impression of Brad Wall. I was not trying to do an impression of Brad Wall for the record. That was that was the Incredible Hulk. So, so remind us uh, about the, the beer tax. What's the issue with the beer? So the beer tax. Once upon a time, Alberta had a differential beer tax that gave preferential status to small uh, microbreweries and and craft breweries, and it, it gave a better. Uh, markup rate to small Alberta craft brewers, but also to those from British Columbia and Saskatchewan. A beer company from Toronto, Steam Whistle, challenged that, won a court injunction, uh, saying it was unfair that the three Western provinces paid less than the uh, the other ones for their to have their market here. Uh, and the Alberta government sort of conceded that and said, okay, from now on, we're just going to have a flat tax, if you can call it that. I guess beer shouldn't be flat, but a flat tax Ugh. on beer prices. Okay. So Brad Wall has pitched a hissy fit because Saskatchewan has now lost its preferential access to the Alberta beer market. The hysterical uh, hypocrisy of this, as uh, beer columnist Jason Foster outlined mm-hmm. in a really excellent blog post, is that Saskatchewan has some of the most protectionist rules around alcohol sales. It sets up tremendous trade barriers to stop beer from Alberta from coming into Saskatchewan. Uh, it, it imposes a much higher markup. And so the idea that Brad Wall is some kind of champion of free trade in beer is absolutely ludicrous that's true you can't find i i lived in saskatchewan for about four and a half years and i drank a lot of beer while i lived there not gonna lie um and yeah seeing alberta beers really wasn't a huge thing you didn't see an awful lot of them certainly not any craft beers i mean since coming to alberta i've seen way more of these craft beers and i didn't realize that alberta had such well a really kind of kicking craft beer market well what what jason foster points out in his His name's foster i know (laughs) (laughs) says the australian beer drinker uh but what he points out in his blog post is that and and he does have an op-ed coming on the topic that'll appear in a soon-to-be edition of the journal all right so his 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 analysis is that in Alberta you can buy roughly 4,000 different kinds of beer and in Saskatchewan you can buy roughly 400 different kinds of beer. The life yeah. you've been living, Emma. I know, it's been sheltered. <laughs> How many kinds existence. of Pilsner are there? <laughs> <laughs> As previously discussed last week when Sarah was not here and we all on Keith's queue opened cans of de-alcoholized beer in the newsroom. Only, mm-hmm. only Emma's husband, Yuri, seemed to like it. What was my point here? Yes, and I wasn't even drinking. My point is that I don't drink beer. This is so not my issue. But the whole argument in this country where we have all across Canada protectionist trade barriers around the sale of alcohol, which make it next to impossible to buy BC wine in Ontario liquor stores, for example. I mean, it's loopy. I can make fun of Donald Trump for wanting to tear up NAFTA, but how can we 
position ourselves as champions of free trade if you can't even sell things you missed last week when emma told the story about taking beer runs across the uh, newfoundland border wasn't it, me no i didn't do this <laughs> No, other no. people did. You That's okay. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, other, I, other people <laughs> broke yeah. the liquor laws yes. in Labrador by running across to Quebec yeah. to yeah. get cheaper beer. I mean, how can we be bootlegging and smuggling within our own country? It's it is completely insane. Whacked. Yeah. It is. It really is. I, I remember actually when the Tories set up, uh, the provincial Tories here set up the, the sliding scale beer tax or markup. Uh, and the idea at the time they said was, well, we know other provinces don't do this. They don't have open markets, uh, but we're going to set an example and other provinces are eventually going to catch on and follow our lead. And it, it just hasn't happened. So the, this is the Notley government saying, OK, enough is enough. Um, we're going to provide some protection for our own brewers here. Yeah. And I have to say, does it play well in Saskatchewan when the premier acts all, you know, go Saskatchewan or boo to. everyone else. I mean, I, I'd always worked for Alberta premiers for the longest time, right? Yeah. I mean... Yeah, it does seem to. Because, again, it, there's... In Saskatchewan, too, I mean, you, you're kind of in the middle there. <laughs> um, and sometimes, perhaps, feel that you don't get that much play on the national stage. So to see your premier standing up, uh, much like Danny Williams used to do for, for Newfoundland... Um, it's just something that people really enjoy. They love to see it because they love to see somebody standing up for them, standing up for their rights, which, and I'm not comparing Brad Wall to Donald Trump, but I'm just saying that they use a similar thing in the whole, let's stand up for our little people who perhaps have been trodden so long and stand up for the little guy. Saskatchewan first. <laughs> there really does seem to be though, like a personal animosity that's developed between Brad Wall and Rachel Notley. And it's obviously they have different political views, but something has happened. Those two just are not getting along. They're playing out in the media. They don't, they don't even seem to be talking to each other on the phone. So I'm not sure how that's developed or, or why they can't resolve that. Yeah. And actually, Brad Wall, um, he, he called a press conference uh, just after Rachel Notley had kind of said, I will not be lectured on my beer prices, Brad. And um, he called a press conference in Saskatchewan. Uh, and I, I listened to the audio of it. And he was ropeable. He said, I was on vacation last week. And my people reached out to her people. And they said to me, well, we don't need to talk. So, you know, I offered. I offered to get on the phone. I've got the emails to prove it. He, you know, he was wow. dead set. He was angry huh. about it. Yeah. Graham told us that they did apparently sit down in Whitehorse yesterday. Um, and so that is a step, perhaps. I didn't get a chance to ask him if they had a drink while they were having their conversation. <laughs> but uh, we'll see. Interestingly enough, I don't think there's going to be a lot of decisions or nothing's going to really settled on this issue after the premier's conference one thing graham did say was that health care is something that they might have an agreement on in terms of asking the federal government for more money much of a surprise there paula well, I'm sure when haven't the premier's been able to agree that they're not getting enough money from ottawa yes that's uh that seemed to be the takeaway takeaway point from there I want to go to something that was very Alberta-centric this week and, and very, very important. Um, two independent offices of the legislature, as we mentioned at the beginning, uh, released reports that said Alberta's child welfare system is failing Alberta's youth. Specifically, it's Indigenous youth. It's Indigenous youth. And this is something, Paula, that I thought, what are they going to say new about this? This is something we know. This is something that we've had in the papers year after year after year. So, Emma, Paula, you were covering this report. What did they say? 
So basically... Uh, and then who was it? Who was it? What did they say? Yeah, it was the Auditor General and the uh, Child and Youth Advocate. Uh, they both did reports, actually separately, um, but then I guess they had a conversation and figured out they were kind of writing about the same thing. Um, and it found that... Uh, indigenous children are way overrepresented in the child welfare system. So one in ten uh, children in Alberta are of Aboriginal heritage, and yet they represent 69% of those in the child welfare system. Um, an Aboriginal, a First Nations child, rather, is 30 times more likely to actually have contact with uh, child services than a non-Aboriginal child. Um, a Métis child is, I think, uh, six times more likely as well. They were pretty startling figures, and. The child and youth advocate, uh, Del Graf, he kind of said, look, we really, really got to do something. But it was interesting as well. He he highlighted how many times this has been brought into the light. Report after report after report. Um, and I asked him, well, what makes you think that suddenly things are going to change? And he said, I think we're in the right climate now. I really, really, really think that now we can do something and now we will do something. It's interesting because... While Emma found those numbers shocking, I didn't find them shocking at all. I, I've known that for a long time. What I found far more interesting were the numbers in uh, Merwin Sahar, the Auditor General's report. The Auditor General has a very different role than the Child and Youth Advocate. And Del Graf's report was very beautiful, very overarching, very sort of macrocosmic about the breakdown of relationships between First Nations and the government and the long lingering legacy of residential schools. Merwin Sahar's report was absolutely straight up nitty gritty. And here's what he reported. The compliance rate for child caseworkers who are supposed to see their charges a minimum of four times a year is 16%. That's Only like not even failing. That's like failing really, really, really yeah, badly. Really bad. I mean, if you got 16% on an exam, you would have to rethink your life's direction. So 16% of child welfare workers are in compliance with the basic standard that says they must check on children four times a year. In some cases, kids were going seven months and longer without any contact with a caseworker. Uh, and, and that's for all kids. But because Native kids make up 70% of kids in care, uh, the fact that, as he also found, Indigenous kids receive the poorest service skews the numbers even more. If kids were off reserve and receiving services from a provincial child welfare office, they were far more likely not to be in regular contact. So say um, if you were non-Indigenous, 25% of non-Indigenous kids weren't seeing a worker four times a year, but 40% of Indigenous kids weren't seeing a worker four times a year. And for kids on reserve, it was twice as bad as for kids off reserve. So children who were receiving services through a delegated child welfare authority on a First Nation were twice as likely to receive substandard care as kids who were getting their services off reserve. Is there any explanation for why they are failing to hit their basic minimum standards? Well, I asked the Auditor General this very question, why, I said, and he said it wasn't his job to find out why it was his job to find the problem and the measurable metric. And, uh, you know, Sahar is a pretty cool customer. He's sort of, you know, uh, the the analytical, you know, the Spock to Del Graf's Kirk. Uh, but I have rarely seen him this charged up. 
and he said, people keep saying the problem is complicated, it's complicated, it's so complicated, we can't fix it. He said, you want to fix a complicated problem, you break it down into manageable bite-sized chunks, and you apply metrics to it, and you say, okay, what's an important metric? How do we move the dial on that? And so his you know, his diagnosis, and I think it's a really profound one. Every time we write about this, people go, oh, it's such a complicated problem. It's multi-generational. What are we going to do? It's about culture. It's about settlers. It's about, yeah, yeah, all of that is true. But at the end of the day, if you want to make any progress on making lives better for kids, you have to measure to see what improves outcomes. So he, he focused on three things. One was, you know, the, the caseworker visits. One was preventative and early intervention that stops kids from needing to come into care. And one was the lack of training for staff. So he said, look, not his job to figure out what's wrong. And he said, you know, people say it's about funding. He said, I don't care what the funding is. If you're not even meeting your own minimum standards and you're not even aware that you're not meeting your own minimum standards because that was the other shocking thing that he said that uh, that human services had no idea that kids uh, of aboriginal background were getting so much poor care uh he said doesn't matter if it's a federal funding fight a provincial funding fight a you know a breakdown in communications between bands and the government if you don't know you have a problem you can't fix it any response from human services on this about how they're going to fix this problem and make sure that their caseworkers are visiting with children at an appropriate amount of time? They're going to develop a plan. I asked Richard Fee and the Minister of Aboriginal Relations this question, and he said, well, you know, we accept all of the recommendations and we're going to, you know, forge a new relationship, a new relationship of trust and a new relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's good, good. Form a new relationship of trust. Absolutely. Have more respect for First Nations culture. Absolutely. But... Are you going to follow up to well, make sure that kids are being Sounds like they seen? either need to get caseworkers out the door more frequently or hire more caseworkers to make sure that they have a caseload that they can manage. Better training. There's a variety of things. I mean, I remember back to our, our fatal care series that we wrote in, uh, I think it was 2013, late 2013. And mm -hmm. one of the pieces there was uh, a look at all the different recommendations that have come, not just from other reports, but fatality inquiries and other kinds of investigations and how few of them have been followed up on it, and, and the fact that the government doesn't even have a system to check if anyone is following up on them, right? And so this is just another example. And what we heard from the ministers and the government here seems very much the same thing that we've heard before. The question is, are they actually going to do something this time? You know, I mean, one could hope, and certainly this is Del Graff, the child advocate's hope, that with an NDP provincial government and a liberal federal government, and both a premier and a prime minister who have said that they are committed to improving the lives of First Nations citizens, that maybe this is the time. But all the goodwill in the world doesn't fix the system, as Merwin Sahar said, if you can't diagnose the problem. Hopefully this is something that the premiers are also talking about at their meetings up in Whitehorse. And finally, Keith, there was another, we're talking about some gaps in the system here. You had an interesting story this week that on the surface seemed like uh, a story just covering a particular incident and uh, regarding medical equipment, but then it seems like there's a bigger issue that you've uncovered. So tell me a little bit about what Alberta Health Services uh, put out this week in a press release about a North Edmonton medical facility. 
Yeah, so this was this came out early in the week, and it was a press conference uh, that an investigation had been done at a, a Northside Medical Clinic, uh, and they had found uh, evidence there that the, the clinic had uh, not been properly sterilizing some of the instruments they yeah. use for uh, skin-invasive procedures. These are things like uh, removing moles or draining a boil, something like that. Uh, they were not setting their sterilizer at a high enough temperature to kill all the pathogens, and uh, staff weren't trained properly. And they found that it was probably about 270 patients that they'd seen uh, that may have been exposed to hepatitis B and C and they want those people to get tested. Uh, and that was basically what was in the press release. Uh, but after some questioning of, of AHS and also the the, uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, it became obvious there's, there's kind of a... Uh, a dangerous gap, as you put it, in how these facilities are inspected. And what we found out is that this particular facility actually opened in the fall of 2013, but didn't get inspected by the college until more than two years later. The Alberta Oops. College of Physicians and Surgeons, right? Because it's yeah. not AHS that does the inspections in under the Alberta system, you learned, or I, yeah, I learned from you. Sort of in this case, Alberta's kind of a, a unique system uh, in some ways that the college uh, here is one of the, uh, might be the only college, in fact, that does these kind of uh, proactive inspections of um, private facilities. This is a private family medicine practice. Uh, and they, um, their issue, they say, is they would like to do these inspections faster, but they have trouble getting information from Alberta Health about when clinics even open. There's about 50 clinics or so that open each year in Alberta. They don't get a list of that until six months, maybe a year later from Alberta Health. They then have to uh, send a survey to the, each clinic and say, what do you do at this clinic? Uh, what procedures do you use? And once they get the surveys back, which can also take months, then they determine a list for inspections. And so, yeah, that's why two years can go by or more than two years before a clinic gets inspected and, and patients theoretically are put at risk. There's got to be a way to speed that up. That's just bananas. I mean, when restaurants open, I don't think we wait two years for a health inspector to come by. And I, and restaurants are also private businesses. So, I mean... It... Bah! One of the things... I I, I, mean, I'm just so creeped out. You know, it's, you know, it's it's 9.30 in the morning and talking about lancing boils with dirty instruments. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they, they had been cleaned, right? Just not to the correct temperature yeah i mean the, the, and it does make a difference the, the quote came from the college register um trevor Teeman, who said yeah they're getting a they do a good job of getting the grimy bits off that that's Aww. that's how he described it but they weren't so good at making sure that uh the tools when they go into the sterilizer that the sterilizer is getting hot enough to kill all the remaining pathogens at first i was upset by this but then it also gave me an opportunity to reflect back and think about how far we have come since 2007 you'll remember in 2007 that's when the east central health region got in immense trouble for uh not sterilizing instruments properly at the vegaville hospital yeah, in operating that's rooms. right and it followed up in 2008 when there was issue in high prairie with uh using uh needles syringes reusing them to put into medicine vials and that was an issue there but back then when i was reviewing all our stories on this there weren't even standards there weren't even provincial standards about what level instruments were supposed to be cleaned to so at least we've come that far now where there are standards and uh, so that's a bonus right so yeah. glass half full <laughs> yeah i, I mean that is one way to look at it well, <laughs> yeah leeches they were good i hear they i hear they still are used in still certain places yeah. in certain places Fair. in the world uh yeah you're right we have come a long way uh, and from what i can tell from what documents i've seen um 
most places are observing the standards and there is a reasonable uh, checking of things, at least at the high levels, at the, the high-risk procedures in hospitals and, and surgical centers. It's these more private facilities that are kind of doing the lower-risk things that are uh, perhaps um, not as... Uh, not as easily checked, uh, not being checked as often as they need to be. And the training is, is of question as well. Yeah, and cleanliness is something we should just expect from our healthcare. Well, you know, it's one thing. I mean, if you go and have your toenails done at a dodgy nail salon, you might expect that you might pick up a foot fungus because they didn't disinfect the, you know, the soaking dishes. But if I go to into a doctor's office or a hospital, I do sort of expect that they sterilize the equipment. I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation. I agree. And AHS agreed as well, right, Keith? I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll end up our, to- we'll wrap up our topics there and move to a quick round of good stuff from the gallery, our uh, weekly segment where we share something notable that we think other political wonks might be interested in. Who wants to start? Who's dying to start? Uh, I guess I can Keith go. Keith is dying. Sure. Look, I wouldn't say dying to start, but uh, of course, like everyone, I've been kind of glued to the TV after work uh, at what was going on at the Republican convention. Uh, and of course, it started the week with a uh, plagiarism scandal. Melania Trump's uh, speech uh, seemed to be lifted a little bit from Michelle Obama's speech some, some years earlier. Uh, and so uh, there's a an interesting piece on longreads.com uh called Unattributed, A Reading List on Plagiarism uh, by Ben Huberman. And basically he just takes, uh, he provides links to five other very good pieces on plagiarism. In particular, uh, I draw your attention to one written by Malcolm Gladwell back in 2004, an essay called Something Borrowed. And it's just uh, some very interesting takes on uh, this plagiarism thing and why it happens. Thanks. I got an, good. I got an email this morning uh, from our education reporter Janet French, uh, and I actually got it at the same time I came into the newsroom and mm-hmm. found that the elevator was once again out of service. Yes, here at the uh, at the Edmonton Journal. So she had actually they're sent, working on it. One of them is being replaced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, <laughs> but apparently there was an investigation by the Canadian Press about uh, about how terrible things are when it comes to. Um, elevators in this country uh there's basically getting technicians are getting paid way less to service way more elevators and we are in dire straits people dire elevator straits they're getting older and the elevators (laughs) are expensive to replace so i don't doubt it that's that is why i take the stairs up five flights every morning (laughs) here at the edmonton journal building i'm gonna go for something a little bit slightly lighter but I, i like to think that it's political too um I was never, I liked the Tragically Hip, but I was really always more of a Spirit of the West girl in my day. And so I'm going to recommend that people watch an HBO documentary uh, called Spirit Unforgettable about the band as uh, as singer John Mann deals with early onset Alzheimer's. Uh, it was a really powerful piece. And with that, I'm going to recommend one of my favorite songs, which is called Political. I'll put up the link to that video because why does everything always have to be so political? That's my recommendation for the week. All right. Well, rather than recommend the transcript of Donald Trump's catastrophic interview with the New York Times, rather than recommend Jason Foster's excellent piece on uh, beer pricing, which so I really, she, really, she's secretly recommending all of those. I, I, I had the pleasure a couple of weeks ago of meeting the American novelist Eleanor Lippman. She was in Edmonton. And uh, in addition to writing comic novels, they're kind of like Sophie Kinsella for the over 50 set. Um, she's also an essayist 
and she writes poems on Twitter of a political nature. And so I'm going to recommend that people should follow Eleanor Lipman on Twitter, at Eleanor Lipman, and I will read you some of her, her recent, um, so you can see what, what I'm talking about. Here's one she posted on June 21st. Vote your conscience, oozes cruise. The hall erupts in angry booze. Endorsement-free provokes attacks, and wife's return to Goldman Sachs. <laughs> <laughs> so where she, she she mostly goes after after Trump, she's got some she's got some uh, some shots at uh, Hillary Clinton too. This is one from July seventh. The IT guy led me astray. He said .gov was not okay. Please know it was naivete. What's a server anyway? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm going to go follow her yep, right, now. right now. Maybe I'll fall back in love with Twitter again by following her. Yeah, don't go, don't go too far. <laughs> That's it for this week. Thanks, Paula, Keith, and Emma for joining me. And thanks to Graham for chiming in a little earlier via phone. And uh, thanks to videographer David Bloom, who's in here with us this week. I don't know how you're going to pull something out of this mess this week, David, but all the best to you. <laughs> you can hear previous episodes of the podcast at edmontonjournal.com or through the Journal SoundCloud feed. The show is also available on iTunes and TuneIn Radio, so subscribe and the press gallery will be there for you when a new episode is all done. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week in the press gallery.